Software Social listeners, Colleen here. For the first time ever, MicroConf is putting on a SAS Podcast Awards. Michelle and I would be so honored if you would nominate us at sasspodcastawards.com. And here's today's show. So I think I already know what the title of this week's episode is going to be. Oh, that's funny because I don't know. Please tell me. (laughs) See, normally we don't decide on the title until I've loaded everything into Transistor and cleaned up the transcript and everything else. But I think today is going to be the pricing episode. Ooh, that sounds fun. Because you were saying last week that you wanted to talk about pricing today, right? I did say that, but I don't know if I'm quite ready yet. Well, it's been on my mind a lot this week. So there was actually, it kind of came out of a conversation um, I was having on Twitter yesterday. Um, and just talking about, specifically talking about um, what to do when you raise prices and and how to treat customers who have been with you for a long time versus business needs to change pricing models or or increase prices um and then of course uh something that happened recently which is a company that many of us use raising their prices on us um and so all of this got me thinking about ways of dealing with prices and how Pricing model itself can be an advantage over competitors, especially entrenched competitors. And then also how there's a lot of advice about pricing. And I think all of that needs to be couched in the specifics of your own business and your own understanding of your customers. So the the context here is that Stripe is raising prices on their subscriptions product. So... Basically, you can use you know Stripe to create your payments. And if you have products set up as subscriptions now, previously their subscriptions API was free. And when it was announced, I think in 2018 or so, the announcement they sent out was basically that it was going to be free forever and just included in the product. And then this morning... Um, this just showed up on Hacker News. I mean, maybe it was yesterday um, that, that the post actually went up and I just saw it today um, that they're now going to be charging a 0.5% fee um, on any subscription, which doesn't sound like a lot. But if you extrapolate that out to making, you know, a thousand, hundred thousand, a million a year, like that, that adds up very quickly. And I think something that's really rubbing people the wrong way is, first of all, they told people at the get-go that this was going to be included and that they weren't going to charge for it. And second of all, that we never even got an email about it and we're just finding out about it on Hacker News. Um, yeah. Um, and and so this actually ties into a conversation I was having with Simon Bennett of Snapshooter on Twitter yesterday about this sort of idea of, of quote-unquote grandfathering pricing. And I say quote-unquote grandfathering, by the way. So I know this is the term that people generally use, um, but we stopped using that term this summer because the concept of, of grandfathering, that the term comes from um, after the Civil War states instituting voting policies that said you could only vote if your grandfather could vote. So, which basically disqualified former slaves and their descendants from voting. 
and I always thought this was just like one like one way the term had been used and wasn't like the origin of it. Um, and so like, you know, once we found that out, we we changed the term how we talk about it to be loyalty discount, which I also think really more communicates what you're giving the customer and makes them feel good about themselves rather than thinking about relatives and stuff like that. Um, so anyway, so so Simon was talking about this because he's saying, you know, oh, I've left so much money on the table by um by by giving these loyalty discounts by by not raising prices on on old customers and we're sort of you know talking about but you can get value out of that in other ways like like as a SaaS company it's so valuable to have long-term customers who will reliably renew like you know they're already onboarded with your product the support volume is much much lower they like you they're presumably happy with your products you know those are the customers we reach out to when um, new customers are looking for a customer reference, which especially happens with bigger companies. Um, so, so I want to bring in like two different resources that kind of helped us think about this. Um, but then also how we think about them differently. Um, so one of those is an article by Amy Hoy, which I feel like I reference her so much on this podcast that like we, we have to have her on. Aren't you guys friends? Like Twitter friends, yeah. I think we like met at MicroConf. Um, yeah, through through the Twitterverse. So this article, uh, it's such a great title. One weird trick to wait raising your monthly price without a customer revolt, which is basically what Stripe is looking at right now. And you know, Hacker News is full of people saying, you know, should we migrate off of Stripe? Like all like all this kind of stuff. So in this article basically goes through like, you know, you see a company raise prices, there is a revolt, it scares you away from raising prices. The problem with that is that companies may need to raise prices, especially the situation you're in right now where you may price something right now and then it turns out as you learn more about your customers and what their cadence of needs are and and how, you know, how their behavior needs to be matched with a pricing model you may need to to change things in six months or a year from now or two years from now, whether that's the actual pricing model itself or the price levels. And so how do you do that in a way without making people revolt? Um, And so one of the key points she makes, you know, here is that it is possible to raise prices without a revolt. Like you don't have to be afraid of that. And there's a good way to do this. I think the way Stripe has done it is not a good way, which is, raising the prices on something people are already using for free and then not telling them about it. Those are two strikes against you there. Um, one of the most popular ways of doing this, which I think Bugsnag is doing, I think, yeah, I think we were just talking about this a couple weeks ago, and we, I mean, Matias and I, um, is that you basically get locked out of new um, features. So you can keep your price for forever. And I think Basecamp does this as well. Um, but you don't get new features. You don't get new functionality. And so, you know, eventually, you know, the percentage of their actual product that you're using is lower and lower and lower. But if you're only doing simple things with a product and you're happy with the price you're paying and you don't need more, that can be a really good thing. Um, another thing is, you know, like designing new plan levels. So you you change those those different levels. And But I, I think the, the really important thing to hear to... to to think about here, you know, your job as a founder, whether that's one who is just starting out or or like me or someone who's been doing this for 20 years, your most important job as a founder is to know your customers better than anyone else. 
This informs the kinds of features you built, how you structure your products, and how you price them. And all of that informs, you know, the kind of service that you're delivering and, and most importantly, how you price that product. Um, and so as you learn more about your customers, you may find there are more optimal ways to do things and ways that are, that are ultimately friendlier to them. Um, you know, for example, like I think we've all been in situations where there's a company that's trying to make something a subscription when you really only need it once. And it's just super annoying. You're like, I only need this once. I don't need a subscription. Like, why, why, why can't I buy this without a subscription? Or, you know, I only need 100 units of this, but I have to buy a subscription and the minimum level is 300. And like, why am I paying for more than I'm using? Like, like all of those situations, like as a customer, don't feel good. And so what we try to do with pricing is to not put customers in those situations, but at the same time, balancing that with the needs of the business and the fact that, you know, if we gave everything away for free or priced it very, very cheaply, like we would go out of business and then we would not be serving our customers, right? So like there's a there's a give and take there. So how do you think a company like Stripe, which has some of the most competent developers and marketers, screw this up so badly? I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I, I I will say, you know, having some been someone who has worked in larger companies that have raised prices with varying levels of customer communication, I mean... It's a difficult thing to to message and certainly being the one responding to the customers is not a fun situation to be in. So um, I do commend Patrick Collison for like jumping in on this Hacker News thread and, and just opening himself up to the firing squad that is Hacker News commenters. Because let's be real, like Hacker News commenters are, I mean, the the most brutal commenters out there. Like yeah. <laughs> if They're you want to destroy someone, send Hacker News commenters after them. Um, you know, so I mean, it's, it's tough. Like raising prices is always tough, but I can talk through how we think about it because we raised prices last year. Yeah. I would love to hear that. I, especially in my situation where I'm just kind of making up a price when I start that seems reasonable and I may have to change it down the line depending on my customer needs and my business needs. So actually, I guess I should start with in the beginning. So, so from the launch point, we got our pricing model basically by copying it from competitors because they offered 2500 for free per day. And we're like, okay, that's just, that's the baseline. So that's what we have to offer. Like, why would anyone switch from a big competitor to us when, you know, we were less generous? Though actually one of our competitors does have a less generous free tier. But anyway, so we took that and then we're like, what our problem is, is we need to be able to pay for 5000 a day rather than just 2500 So we gave it a pay-as-you-go model. And I don't remember how we actually set the price for pay as you go, come to think of it. I think we originally set it as $1 per thousand. I have no idea how we actually came to that price. It would be, I, I should look through my notes and try to find that. Um, I don't even know if I did some back of the the envelope math on okay we've got these two tiny little digital ocean servers um you know one server one, one database server for twenty dollars a month um and you know this is how many customers we would need um so then so we did that for a while 
And then, but I think the real, the, the thing that really kicked off our growth was introducing the unlimited plan in May of 2014. And it's funny, and I say unlimited because one of the go-to resources on pricing that basically everybody should reference is Pricing Low-Touch SaaS from Stripe Atlas Guides, written by Patrick McKenzie, which is just probably one of the most referenced pricing articles for bootstrappers, along with Amy Hoy's writing. Um, And in that article, he says, never sell unlimited anything, which I find so interesting because we actually do sell something unlimited. And I think, and, and this is one of those things where, you know, your job as a founder is to know your customers better than anyone else. And it's also to know your business better than anyone else. And if you have competitive advantages that other people don't have, like you've talked about how you're switching um, storage providers because they give you an operational cost advantage rather than using AWS, like if you have those advantages, using them. And so in May of 2014, we had a customer come to us and say, you know, I love your product, but with your pricing model, like that doesn't really work for us. Like we need to do a ton of geocoding is there any way you can give us something that's like that's higher volume? Um, and what we ended up doing was like, you know, we can just we can just allocate one server to you, and then you're gonna get your own instance of the platform, and we manage it for you. But your API key, rather than talking to the public cluster, is just only gonna talk to that server, and then you're just responsible for basically not DDoSing yourself. You know, using DDoSing in a very broad term here but basically not you know not overwhelming the server and so your limit is the capability of the hardware so we introduced that unlimited plan and i and we set it at 750 a month and i think we set it there because at the time uh one of our major competitors enterprise plan was ten thousand dollars a year um for for i think a hundred thousand a day so you're still getting a lot more but they had a much better quality product um and so we wanted to price it below it um uh, because again i think we, we didn't have very much confidence in the beginning in terms of but also it was somewhat realistic that our product was really not very good um and so we wanted to price it accordingly <laughs> it's much better now um so so once we introduced that we you know we learned how much companies love um flat pricing like they just they larger companies really don't like variability in pricing um and that was a huge um huge engine of our growth was introducing that plan but that price stayed at 750 a month for a long time even when our competitors were charging much more for it and we actually had customers say like you guys should really charge more because it makes you seem not as legitimate that it's so cheap like it seems suspicious and we're like, that's really weird. And then we had other people say it too. And we're like, I guess maybe we should figure out raising prices. But something that was really important to us was those customers who've been with us for a long time, we wanted to make sure that they were still getting the best price for it. And I think that really comes out of my own experiences, you know, you know, to talking about the Stripe situation, like being on that side myself in the past and having to defend a pricing decision, maybe even one that I didn't make personally, but having to be on that side of messaging it, like I saw just how destructive it was for people's uh, belief in a company and and their opinion of it, and how they're like, you know, I've I've been a subscriber for twenty years, and and I'm not getting the best price. The new people coming in the door are like, like what is this? And we got that all the time. 
And so I really didn't want to replicate that experience. And so we decided was that people would, who were going to raise the price to $1,000 a month, um, but people who had an active subscription, they could keep the $750 price as long as they had an active subscription. So that meant that if anybody who was currently an unlimited subscriber as of November of 2019, was this 2018? I think it was 2019 we did this. Um, feels like forever ago now. So um, they would keep that price as long as they had an active subscription. But talking about like cadence, like sometimes we have people who are, for example, academic researchers who like need to do one really big batch once a year. And so they'll just use it for one month and then cancel. They would pay the higher price because it wasn't a continuous subscription. And that's also really why I like framing it as a loyalty discount because we're rewarding them for staying with us um and if they stay with us then then they will continue to get the best price but nobody you know nobody who comes in new is going to get um that price and and i think it's just really important psychologically to to reward that because when people see that new customers are getting a better price than them for a product they've used for a long time um people get really upset they get justifiably upset um but it, it, it's a, it's a tough thing to to message absolutely so are you guys gonna move off of stripe what's your take on the whole situation for your business we had a conversation about it this morning um i think the thing to weigh there is it's not just the extra money that we would be paying stripe for this there's also the opportunity cost involved. And as a two-person company, our time is our most valuable asset. And to spend three weeks now migrating over to a new payment platform or simply migrating off of the subscriptions API and handling more of that in-house, there's all of that time up front, plus there is all of the time on an ongoing basis. Um to 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 manage all those things that Stripe is managing. So I think we're th- we're we're thinking about it. Um there also seems to be if you get to a certain volume that Stripe will negotiate with you on on the rates. So I'm kind of unclear on what those levels are and whether they will actually negotiate with you. Um I'm not totally where I stand on it right now. Um though th- I, this is a very strange way of thinking about it, but this is my own personal mental accounting. Um, when there's a product that I pay a lot of money for and I actually like like the product or I recognize that there is this lock in there. Right. Because this is like, you know, the, the amount of time to switch to a new payment provider creates substantial moat for for Stripe. Um, that's a That's a barrier to entry for for, you know, switching off of some uh, switching costs. That's the word I'm looking for. So um, I sort of <laughs> I comfort myself by buying their stock. So unfortunately, Stripe is not public yet, um, and neither is Intercom. Those are probably the two companies we're the most locked in with that would be the most hassle to switch off of them. They're not public yet, but I will buy their stock when they're public. Um, But it's kind of the thing like, you know, progressive insurance, for example. Like, you know, we buy progressive insurance and... um, I also own their stocks. I'm like, you know what? I feel like I'm like whenever I get a dividend um, notification, I'm like, I'm getting a little bit of my money back. Um, it's it's so weird. Um, it's it doesn't make sense. Um, and and my friends who are 
uh, into the psychology of finance will will find that hilarious. Um, but that but that's how kind of how I think about things. Like even actually today, I was looking at I was doing some analytics on um, payments. So I was trying to map out the path to becoming an unlimited customer and like, you know, how long are people pay as you go customers? Are most people pay as you go customers first or they jump right to it? Like just sort of figuring some of those things out. And um, and I was also emailing people who should switch to unlimited because they will save money. And it turned out that uh, one of those companies on the list was like a, a, a law firm that um, exclusively works with Virginia local governments to make sure they're capturing all of their uh, revenue. And I was like, this is hilarious because I've been going back and forth with our local Virginia government on taxes. And it's like, OK, you know, and I pay them a lot in taxes every year. And, and I'm like, I'm getting a little bit of that money back because this person that is a vendor to them is paying us. And it's this beautiful cycle of uh, the economy, right, um, where, you know, money is kinetic and wants to be moving and money moving is a beautiful thing. Um, so, so that's kind of how I think about it. That's, I think that's where I will end up going with this. Um, but it remains to be seen on Hacker News. It did seem like they were willing to negotiate with some people and at least extend the free nature of the subscriptions API until the end of 2021. Um, so I think we will, we will reach out to them, um, about that because I mean, it is a great product. Like it's a, it's a really, really good product. And as someone who personally dealt with managing your own merchant account and dealing with the banks and 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 all of that stuff at an old job like that was such a headache um and and stripe takes a lot of that away and if you know our most valuable asset is our time stripe does give us a lot of our time back um and maybe i just have to suck it up that they are pricing for it after all, i mean patrick mckenzie's whole thing is charge more and he works for them so I can't really blame them. Yeah, I think that the communication on it is, uh, you know, you know, some some people say, uh, you know, act as if your actions could end up on the front page of the New York Times tomorrow, or, you know, act as if they could be blowing up on Twitter or on Hacker News. I think that's the modern version of that. To me, it seems like the real problem here is that it used to be free and. We, we being the people who use it, were under the impression it was always going to get rolled up in the entire, in the price and that has changed. I mean, I think it's a great product, but I literally put someone on the subscriptions API three months ago. So that is frustrating. Yeah. And and there's a whole thing about it was free or, you know, you were, you were paying through it through the other fees you're already paying Stripe. And now it's something else on top of that. Like, so when we launched our geocodio maps product in i think this was 2018 or 2019 um we like we we already had a free sort of like basic preview map that we generated for people for a long time and then we made this more more advanced um mapping platform that's sort of like you could call it like tableau light um specifically focused on maps and we went back and forth quite a bit on how do we price this? How do we integrate it with the product? Like, we really didn't want to take away that thing that was free for people um, because we didn't want them to exactly have that feeling of, wow, this used to be free and now you're charging me for it, but it, it hasn't changed. And 
or even if it has like I only wanted the basic thing like that was fine for me like we really wanted to respect that some people only needed the basic map um and people who wanted something more advanced could go somewhere else and and pay for that um now that's created all sorts of other headaches for us about integration of the products and we'll, we'll probably be integrating it more into the product in the future but still keeping um some amount of free because i think once you release something and especially if it's free it's really hard to claw that back um which is why you know we were talking about this last week or, or two weeks ago you're talking about what your your free tier would be and and all that kind of stuff like that is a really really important thing to get right in the beginning are you doing are you doing free tier are you doing free trial like what are those um what are those amounts and also what are you getting out of that right like basically what you get out of a free tier is not having to do as much marketing and sales as you would if you you know had to pitch everybody up front before they can use the product um but being very deliberate about what those free tiers are because as as we're seeing with stripe if you make something free and then you charge for the exact same thing later or you charge for it plus a whole bunch of other people features that people don't need people are going to get upset yeah rightfully so i think so you mentioned that you kind of uh have thought a little bit about pricing but not enough to really talk about it so let's talk about it (laughs) okay so I looked at a few players in this space. The ones I'm familiar with are Upload Care and Cloudinary. Cloudinary is one I've actually used before, and it's very popular in the Rails community. They have a pretty generous free tier. So their free tier, you get 25 monthly credits. And a monthly credit is described as 25,000 transformations or 25 gigs of storage or 25 gigs of net viewing bandwidth. And I assume you can mix and match these three aspects of their service in any way you want to hit that 25K number. That being said, it's really hard to know if you're going to go over that number or not. I mean, that is pretty confusing if you look at that. Like, how are you supposed to have an idea of if you're going to exceed that with transformations, if you're allowing your users to do transformations and different file sizes? I'm not sure. A combination of those? How do you, like, do they have examples? It's like, your user uploads an image, and then they decide to rotate it and, and change the colors and invert it and everything. They might. It's kind of hard to tell from this pricing page. And as I mentioned at the top of the episode, I didn't really do my homework on this yet. So it might be somewhere in this documentation. But at first glance... It is challenging to see exactly how that's all going to stack up when you actually put it in your application. Like, do you know what your customers are actually paying for this? Like, like when you as a developer have built a website for people, you've said that you've used some of these services. Do you know what they're actually paying? I don't because I have used the free tier of Cloudinary, but for file heavy applications and I have worked there's one company in particular and we were really file heavy heavy we rolled it ourselves so our costs were the developer time to set up the system the upload system and then the cost of storage and AWS and then the cost of 
you know, egress, bandwidth, those kinds of things as users use the service. So it sounds like what you're competing with then is the developer's time to build something themselves plus whatever they would be paying S3 for the storage. Yeah, I think that's reasonable. And I think that's a more realistic comparison to comparing them to these big players like the Upload Care or the Cloudinary because I don't provide any of those extra services like the transformations and the AI and um, the filtering. So yes, I think it is more accurate to describe it as the developer's time and whatever the you know current storage and CDN fees they're paying right now. Because it, it's important to note that competitors can be as much companies as they can be processes. And, you know, a competitor can be the amount of time someone would take to do something themselves. And so that talking about that pain reminds me of our ongoing segment here, which is Colleen Reed's story brand. Yes. Um, and so t- talking about the pain the user faces and the problem they're going through uh, makes me curious for what you read in StoryBrand this week and how it relates to your nascent business. Yeah. So this week I read the chapter on guides. And so the author of this book talks a lot about how everyone is the hero in their own story. A lot of brands come in and they position themselves as the hero. They're going to solve all your problems, but that's not what you should do. You as a brand should position yourself as the guide. So your customer is the hero. You are the guide and you are showing them the way that's going to lead them to a solution. So the author talks about two characteristics of a guide. One is empathy and the second is authority. And he says the three things every human being wants most are to be seen, heard, and understood, which pretty much also sounds applicable to parenting and life. I think that's pretty reasonable. (laughs) right so we talk a little he talks a little bit about empathy let's start with empathy because that's the first thing you have to do so how do you show empathy again is this a course on business or a course on life I don't know anyway um, a few examples he gives of empathetic statements are we understand how it feels too nobody should have to experience like you we are frustrated by so First step is establishing empathy. For me specifically, for my brand, I think frustration might be one. Like you, I am frustrated by having to do this annoying process over and over and over. Or like you, I am frustrated that this is just such a pain. And then he talks about authority. And he distinguishes between authority and competence because you don't want to come off as a braggart. You don't want to come off as a know-it-all. I don't want to position myself as, well, you used your root API keys. That was stupid. You know, I don't want to position myself as a jerk. Like I want to position myself as competent, empathetic and competent. So you'd want just the right amount of authority, not so much that your customer feels belittled. So he gave four examples of how you could, you could do this. Um, One is testimonials, two is statistics and who doesn't love statistics? Most people. Go on. (laughs) Three is awards and four is logos of companies that have worked with you. Yeah. Like, I mean, numbers are very convincing Um, unless they're too good, though. Like 
Like our NPS score is stupidly high. Like it's somewhere in the 90s. And at one point we had it on our website. And people were like, I don't think that's real. Like, where is that? And like, Henrik, should we get like an NPS site that like people that actually like feeds it and like it says it's clear? And then we're like, we'll just we'll just take the statistic off and instead do logos and testimonials. So when the author talks about positioning yourself as a guide, he talks about the first impressions, both with people and with businesses. And he says a great first impression is made by doing two things. The first thing someone is going to do when they meet you or when they interface with your business is, can I trust this person or business? And can I respect this person or business? So the empathy we're showing early on in this process leads to trust. And so our goal as a company is, my goal as a company, I guess, is to guide the customer or the hero to the solution. So I am not the hero. I am the guide. Yeah. Your business is Mr. Miyagi and your customer is the Karate Kid. It's so funny reading that book. Like after reading that book, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm seeing this whole, this guide hero motif everywhere. (laughs) Yes. I am seeing it in movies. I'm seeing it in successful businesses. I'm seeing it everywhere. So something else I wanted to talk to you about is my software product, which has finally reached beta status in Heroku, which is really exciting because now it's available on the general Heroku marketplace. But it's kind of sad because it is not available for sale. The way it works is I have to get 100 users, 100, before I can actually try and charge for it. So that is like a great milestone that I'm excited about. But what I want to talk about is what I should do now. And I'm going to give you a multiple choice test. Okay. So what should I do next? A, more tech stuff. I want to build more stuff. There's another feature I want for myself that I want to build. B, make it available as a standalone product, like on its own website in its own world. C, do marketing on Heroku. So focus on my Heroku marketing page. D, this is a lot of choices, sorry. D, make available on another marketplace like a Cloudflare or E, E, I'm on E, make a marketing website. So I think those options were A, focus on Heroku, B, focus on non-Heroku, like deplatforming it entirely, Option C was further integrating with Heroku, like something about Heroku, right? (laughs) Option D was putting it on Cloudflare's platform. And then option E was building a marketing website. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's pretty close. Okay, so stop building at this point. So I think like at least at this point you're focusing on you're focusing on distribution and marketing, which is really good. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah, Colleen, you need to do some selling first. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> right. And, you know, the, this whole thing about Heroku not being able to charge for it until you have 100 customers, I think that could be dangerous for you because it allows you to punt on pricing. So just to challenge you, I'm going to say option B or the C or D, whichever, Cloudflare, right? Like depending on how important you think channels 
are and like those channels are going to be for your distribution like do you think you can have your own distribution or do you need to rely on a marketplace um selling it somewhere else which will force you to develop pricing also to like get people paying for it which is both the most financially rewarding part about it and super motivating um which will encourage you to keep working on it but i think it's time to step away from Heroku for a little bit and try to actually go out and sell the damn thing. And I know that just because someone uses a free product does not mean they're going to pay for it. So is anyone actually going to pay for it? Exactly. And you need to figure that out now before you spend more time on the tech. Yeah, I think that is excellent advice. And you're absolutely right because I've kind of been in this um, perpetual state of not being able to charge for it. I really haven't had to sort out any of these issues. Like, will people pay for it? Um, how do I find people? All the normal issues when you're trying to sell a product. So, all right, that's my goal. That's what I'm going to work on. And that's going to wrap up today's episode of the Software Social Podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at Software Social Pod. Thank you for listening. Send me all your good vibes. Huge thanks to all of our listeners who've become software socialites and support our show. Chris from Chipper CI, the daringly handsome Kevin Griffin, and Mike from Gently Used Domains, who has a nice personality, Dave from Recut, Max of Online or Not, Stefan from Talk to Stefan, Brendan Andrade of Brightbits, Team Tuple, Alex Hillman from The Tiny MBA, Rami from Hovercode and Rocket Gems, Jane and Benedict from UserList, Kendall Morgan, Ruben Gomez of Signwell, Corey Haynes of Swipewell, Mike Wade of Crowd Sentry, Nate Ritter of Roomsteals, Anna Mast of SubscribeSense, Jeff Roberts from Outseta, Justin Jackson, MegaMaker, Jack Ellis and Paul Jarvis from Fathom Analytics, Matthew from Appointment Reminder, Andrew Culver at Bullet Train, John Coster, Alex of Corso Systems, Richard from Stunning, Josh the Annoyingly Pragmatic Founder, Ben from ConsentKit, John from Credo and Editor Ninja, Cam Sloan, Michael Copper of Nusi Proposals, Chris from URL Box, Callie of Toslet, Greg Park from Trait Lab, Adam from Rails Autoscale, Lana and Alex from Recapsi, Joe Mazzalotti of RailsDevs.com, Proud Mama from Applenet LLC, Anna from Cradle, Monsef from Ruby on Mac, Steve of Be Inclusive, Simon Bennett of Snapshooter Backups, Josh Smith of Keyhero.io, Jesper Christensen of Form Backend, Matthew of Works Cited, Chris of JetBoost.io, Daryl Shannon of Docomatic, Larabels, a community for Larabelle developers underrepresented due to their gender, Brendan from Feederloop, Pascal from Sharpen.page, Lynn Romick from Convini, Arvid Call, James Sowers from Castaway.fm, Jessica Malnick, Damian Moore of Audio Audit Podcast Checker, Eldon from Nodal Studios, Mitchell Davis from RecruitKit.